Hello, I'm Charles Cooper, and welcome to Kingdom Alive, a teaching ministry about the soon coming royal reign of Jesus Christ. In this session, I continue my series, Disciples Disciple, Understanding the Gospel of God. The Gospel of God is the promise of the eschatological permanent physical manifestation of God on earth in sovereign power. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but it basically is God's promise to come to this earth and set up a kingdom to reign forever. The Gospel of Mark opens by telling us that Jesus came preaching this very message and that his message had three pillars. That was the time is fulfilled, that was the kingdom of God has come near, and that repent and believe the gospel is man's responsibility. Now, repentance is God's requirement for both sinners and saints to escape the temporal judgment of God. In summary, repentance is for believers and unbelievers. It can occur before or after regeneration, it can even aid a person in coming to faith in Christ. However, repentance is not a condition of receiving eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. That's our subject for study today. Bibles open, minds engaged, let's study. The Gospel of God, if I was going to give it a definition in the in a summary fashion the promise okay it's the promise of the eschatological permanent physical manifestation of god on earth in sovereign power okay so what 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 in the world does that mean God promised in his word all the way back to Adam in Jude chapter 14 uh, chapters 1 verses 14 and 15 it was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied so so Enoch was a prophet. He prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Now, this, these two verses from the book of Jude, a little, little short book, are far more significant than they are typically given. God promised Adam... What, it didn't just start with Enoch, by the way. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. 
God promised Adam and Eve after the fell, after the fall, that he was going to come and fix the problem. And that's a summary, okay? I'm, God promised that he himself personally was going to come to this earth, repair and fix the break caused by Adam and Eve's failure. The details, the specifics were not delineated in the scripture in one place. This is the problem. God never outlined in specific order, A, B, C, D, how he was going to fix Adam's failure in faithfulness. But he promised Adam that he was, that he personally was going to do it. Now, God came in the, in the garden, Adam and Eve, and he appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden, but we're not told what form he took. He appeared. They knew it was God. They were used to him coming in the form that he came. But God promised that he was going to personally come to this earth. And Enoch prophesied, continuing the promise, that the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodliness by his manifestation. And he is going to deal with sinners who have said bad things about him. This is what the New Testament developed as the gospel the gospel of God. So if I wanted to put it in a, a nutshell, I would say it, it is the promise. This is very important. The word promise is very important. I don't know why I didn't put that in there. My apologies. The promise, God promised that he would come, which is why the word eschatological. Now, these are words that you probably don't normally use, but I want you to get used to them because they are important. Eschatological means the final. The final. God promised a final showdown, show up, that he was going to show up one day and that when he did, when he does, it's going to be the final one. And that he is going to physically manifest himself. Physical. There's going to be a physical manifestation of God. Actually on the earth. And it would be in sovereign power. Now, 
when God made this promise to Enoch, I'm going to come in judgment, sovereign power, to judge the ungodly. So you don't want to be in the group of the ungodly. That's the point. So the, the final permanent, because when this one, when the final appearance of God physically manifested on the earth, it will be permanent. Up until now, he's come and gone. He came in a whirlwind. He came in a storm. Then one day he comes in the form of a, of a man, and all of a sudden the physical manifestation of God on earth took on a whole new meaning. Because, see, when God promised Enoch that he was going to come to this earth in judgment with ten thousands of angels, he didn't say how he was going to do it, but he promised he would. And so we, did, we had no idea how God was going to do this. How would God, who has no form, God the Father does not take form. Never. He never takes a form. He never will. He will show up as a voice speaking out of a burning bush, but that's not God. The burning bush is not God. That's how he manifested his presence. He shows up in the clouds. He showed up in the thunder and the lightning. He shows up in the smoke. Those manifestations of God are not his physical, because he, he can't take on a physical form. God the Father never takes on a physical form, never. His glory will burst forth, but he does not take on physical form. We found out that the way God was going to keep his promise was to join godness with manness in the incarnation of Jesus. And God took on a physical form of man. So we have God and man inseparably united, yet without mixture, 100% God, 100% man. And this, we found out, with Jesus, is how God is going to keep this promise that he is physically going to manifest on this earth. And he's going to do it, well, he's already done it, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God, physically manifested on the earth. And when he returns, he's going to be permanently on the earth, reigning in sovereign power. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel of God, which he had given pieces, parts of it, at different times and in different ways. He talked about it, but he had never spelled it out in unequivocal, simple English. And of course, he, he wouldn't have. Would have been simple Hebrew, maybe, but not English. But anyway, 
eschatological, the final, permanent, it will never, he will never leave. Okay? That will be a physical, a permanent physical manifestation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This, this is so important. Because if you don't get that, then you don't understand a lot of what Jesus is doing and talking about because it doesn't make any sense. And the reason it didn't make sense to the Jews at the time is because God had given them pieces of it, a part here, a piece there, but he had never put it all together. He, he didn't tell them that he was going to come in the form of a man. And when he did that, the, the Jewish people had exploded because he had never said that, not in the way that they thought or understood what he meant. So when Jesus came and said, I am the son of God, they said, okay, wait a minute. If you are the son of God, that means that you are God and God can't be a man. So they couldn't understand it. It didn't make any sense. So Jesus set about proving it. He, he would do the miracles and he would do the word and he looked and acted and was in every way different from every other man they'd ever met, but they couldn't, it was a hurdle, it was a bridge too far for them to be able to say, okay, God, who promised that he was gonna come to this earth, actually is gonna come in a physical manifested form as the sovereign ruler of this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. See, that was too much. Now, we today, 2,000 years later, having read it and heard it and understood it, we now say, okay, well, okay, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God, and that there are three in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in every way, yet physically totally distinct. And, and we, can, we can say it. We don't know what it means. We don't know how. We just know it says that it is. But it is, ladies and gentlemen, how God is going to show up on this earth. Now, here's the problem. When he does finally come, it ain't going to be good for you if you are not righteous. Now, if you if you kind of running around, just kind of, you know, hey, it is what it is. Man. Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. The gospel of God is a warning of coming judgment, and you need to figure out what do I need to do in order to make sure that I am not one of the ones who will be judged as ungodly. That's what the gospel of God is warning against. So when Jesus came in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says that after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God, saying, time is fulfilled, kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the good news. Now, we find out that there are three pillars. Time is fulfilled, kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. These are the three pillars pillars. Pillar number one, of course, is the time is fulfilled. And the time of man's enslavement to sin has ended because God has 
announced and released the jubilee. We are in the jubilee of God, the release from the slavery to sin. We have been set free from that, and we are now free to live our lives in total commitment and submission to God. That is the time that we are now living in. Pillar number one. Pillar number two says the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is the, is the sovereign administration of God, that is, the rule of God. God is now ruling on this earth in a way that he was not prior to Jesus coming. Now, the rule of God is the reign itself, the administration, the people. God is building a cabinet of people, men and women, whom he will give the right to reign with his son. And this is all being done under the rubric of the kingdom of God. He has invited you. God has extended to you. Every one of you in here this morning, you have been extended an invitation to become part of the ruling class of Jesus Christ. It is not automatic. You have to earn it. But if you do, you're going to actually rule with Jesus in his coming kingdom, not as a subject being ruled over, but a ruler ruling over. They're going to be both. You have to decide based on how you're willing to live your life, which one you fit in. The third pillar is repent and believe the gospel. Now, this is where I want to land today. We are told that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from then on, from this point forward, never before, from this point forward, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The rule of God has come into your domain. Therefore, repentance is the appropriate action for you. Now, what we need to do this morning is I've got to work on this word what is the New Testament doctrine of repentance? Now, I introduced you a while back to a big old word, illegitimate totality transfer. Um, because I want you to know, we live in a culture that just dumbs down everything. We just make everything dumb. We make people dumb. We like dumbness. The Christian faith demands you got to think. You can't just sit there and just hear the words and be okay with it. You, you got to learn to think for yourself. And you got to learn to think beyond what typically is given, which is usually baby food. You need to learn to feast on the depth of God's word. So, illegitimate totality transfer. Remember, remember what I told you that is. Illegitimate totality transfer is a habit of biblical interpretation, which is very common, but is a great source of error in Bible study. Now, what do I mean? Because we tend to want to dummy down everything, 
we tend to try to reduce things to their least common denominator so we can remember it. Because we don't like to walk around trying to think about things in a very confusing way. So we take a word and we say, okay, this is what this word means. And then every time we see that word, we apply that meaning to the word. Because that's, we, we learned that that is one of the meanings. And we tend to take one of the meanings as every meaning and don't see it as what it is, which is more than one. A word can mean more than one thing. Therefore, you have to make sure you have the right meaning in the place where you are applying that meaning. And we do this all the time. And the, the word repentance is one such word. Now, as, as church began to move away from Jesus, and as we began to move through church history, words started being reduced to simplicity. And because for even today, probably, I don't know, it's a, I don't know what the exact number is, but there is a significant number of people who are Christian who can't read. They don't read. I mean, there are people whom the gospel has gone out to, they don't, their language is not even written down. They don't, they don't, they can't read their own language. Many, many people in the world. You go to Asia, Africa, there are people who simply don't read. They don't even read their own language. So when you start talking about the meaning of words, we tend to not appreciate that having a society of people where the majority, 80, 90% of your society can read and write is one of the most significant things in human history. It has never been before. What that means is that you have a lot of people who can't read, and so when you tell them a word, you, you, they're simply going to just take the simple meaning of it. You get a little more sophisticated the more you add to it. You get a little more sophisticated, but you don't. So the word repentance has come to mean change your mind about Jesus. That's what most people think the word repentance means, to change your mind about Jesus. But that is not what the New Testament word repentance originally meant. That is, that is something that we've added to later. Now, notice what this repentance was, a fundamental truth in the teaching of John, Jesus, and the apostles. In modern English, the word repent means to be sorry for your sin. If we tell people you need to repent, what we, what we are saying today is, they need to be sorry for their sin, which is not what this word originally meant. 
But the Greek word used in the New Testament meant more than just being sorry for your sins. It meant to change the course of your life, to turn around and go the other way. It meant to determine that the life you've been living is morally offensive to God, and it is, it is a sin. And having determined that, you turn around and go in the direction of that which will please the coming king, that is, true repentance. You had to change your orientation, and you did it to turn away the promise of God's wrath. Repentance, for some people, some people believe that repentance is a condition of eternal salvation since it is a synonym for faith in Christ. Thus, he who believes in me has everlasting life is identical to he who repents has everlasting life. So a lot of people see if you repent, it means you believe. So they see them as synonyms. They, they're one and the same thing. If you repent, you believe. If you believe, you repent. Because that's the modern way of thinking about the word repentance. That is not the biblical way of thinking about the word repentance. Okay? Repentance is a condition of eternal salvation since it is necessary, since it is a necessary precursor to faith in Christ. Thus, one cannot believe in Christ until he first repents. That is, until he first recognizes his sinfulness and the need of a salvation. Now, this is the second way that people understand this word repentance. Some people say, well, you've got to come down to the front of the church and repent of your sin. And once you repent and then believe, and then you have salvation. So it's the first of two steps in order for you to get salvation. I, can't, I, I never forget when I went to uh, Ukraine, I, I learned that people in the Ukraine, in order for you to, 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 to become part of the church, you had to, you had to stand up before the whole church and repent, which meant tell every sin you've ever committed. And you can imagine church didn't grow much. But that was how they understood it. And there are a lot of people today, some people teach, that if you repent first, feel sorry for your sins, come down to the front of church, cry, weep, and wail, feel bad, and promise to be nice and be good, then you can get salvation, which simply is not true. That it just isn't true. Now, there's a third way some people look at it, and repentance is not a condition of eternal salvation, since repentance is neither a synonym for faith in Christ nor a necessary precursor to faith in Christ. In other words, repentance may be part of the avenue of getting to Christ, but it is not critical, crucial to your coming to faith. Now, Wilkins, he says, in response to Jonah's proclamation of coming judgment, all the people of Nineveh fasted and put on sackcloth and turn from their evil way, it says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. The repentance of the Ninevites was not faith in Christ, and it was not a necessary precursor to faith in Christ. They decided to turn from their sins because they hoped to escape the destruction of their city and the widespread loss of life that Jonah had proclaimed. The people said, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger so that he may that we may not perish. In other words, when the Ninevites repented, 
what they did is that they looked at their circumstances and determined that if they wanted to turn away the wrath of God, they needed to change the way they were living their lives. They had to turn away from the evil way of living that they were under, and they had to start producing a life that would satisfy God and thus turn away his wrath. It does not say that they came to believe. It didn't say that they were the unbelievers. There is no indication in the text that these people didn't believe in God, and all of a sudden they had to come to believe in God. They believed in God. They heard his verdict on their sin, and they turned. In other words, repentance has to do with your changing your lifestyle to satisfy the wrath of God. All 55 New Testament references to repentance bear this out. In each case, repentance is a decision to turn from one's sins. It is never a synonym for faith in Christ or a necessary precursor to faith. Never. You don't repent, then believe. You repent in light of the Word of God in the hope that it will turn away the wrath of God. The idea of repentance is a category strikingly absent from the writings of the Apostle Paul. In fact, the word repentance as a condition or involved in salvation is not used in the writings of the Apostle Paul. You would think that if repentance was a big deal and one of the major steps to salvation, that Paul would have delineated it more than once given as the many letters that he wrote. Why, how can you explain the fact that Paul does not spell out repentance as a critical step in the attaining salvation? Did Paul not know? Did he just forget? How do you explain that? How, how do you explain this in the Apostle Paul? Repentance, Paul says, is godly sorrow, but that is not necessarily a step to salvation. While repentance is strikingly absent from Paul's writing, it is completely absent from John's gospel. Now, the most gospel gospel, the most gospel gospel is John. Everybody knows that. Everybody believes that. The most gospel gospel is John. If you've got a person who's a new Christian, where do you, what's the first book you tell them to read? John. Why? We say, well, it's simple, and it explains salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. How then do you explain that in the most gospel gospel, John, the word repentance does not occur once? Not once. If it's the most gospel gospel that explains how salvation is attained, which is what he says was his goal, then how could he not tell people that repentance is a critical step to faith in Jesus Christ? See, these are the things you have to think about. I mean, if, if repentance, when Jesus says repent, he means to change your mind about me, how do you explain the fact that he never says that people need to repent in the gospel of John when the gospel of John is the most gospel gospel in the gospels? You got it? 
Doesn't the parable of the prodigal son teach that repentance is necessary for eternal salvation? Didn't, didn't the prodigal need to repent? Yes. The question you need to ask, though, is what is the story of the prodigal doing? I can only tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I, my heart weeps for people who have been taught. This is why we started at the very beginning. This is why I felt it so necessary to ground you in the scripture that righteousness comes by faith in the promise of God. Abraham was saved because he believed the promise. It says that Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness, John, uh, Genesis 15, 6. There was no repentance. It didn't say that Abraham repented and God gave him, he said he believed the promise of God and God credited it for him as righteousness. In the same way that Abraham is saved, ladies and gentlemen, is the same, they, they, is the same way that we are. While, while many understand it precisely in that way, that is the, the prodigal son repented, got saved, and came home. Now, you have to believe that the prodigal son was not saved when he left home. If you believe he got saved coming home. You have to believe that. The story of the prodigal son, a fact most fail to take into account is that the prodigal was a son of his father before he went to the far country. While he was in the far country, he was a son. And when he returned from the far country, he was still a son. He never stopped being a son. The issue was not, how do you become a son? That was never the issue. He was always a son. In fact, the reason he got his inheritance was because he was a son. He didn't become a son when he repented. Rather, by repenting, this son came back into fellowship with his father. He had violated his father-son relationship by going to live a life of sin. When he repented, which, by the way, if you read the story, how did he repent? See, I'm going home. Folk are treated better in my father's house as a slave than I'm being treated in the world, hungry, raggedy, nasty, and eating the food of hogs. So he decided he's going home, and he says, when I go home, I'm going to tell my father I'm not worthy to be your son. Treat me as a slave, and I'll be happy. But, of course, if you read the story, you know that the father didn't treat him as a slave, he treated him as a restored son. First, both the believer and the unbeliever may escape temporal judgment if they repent. Now, this is the whole point of this morning. <laughs> See, it took you a long time to get there. Repentance 
Well, let me give it to you this way. In summary, repentance is for believers and unbelievers. It can occur before or after regeneration. You may need to repent after you're saved, though it should be few. We use the word repent to mean every time you sin, you're supposed to repent. Every time you sin. Every time you sin, you need to repent. No. That is not New Testament repentance. Repentance for a believer ought to be very minimal. You should only have to repent every once in a while. Hopefully, you shouldn't have to ever repent. Once you turn to God and promise to live according to his word, you should never turn away from that. And if you do, you're in sin. Therefore, you need to repent. But it's not just sinning. It's turning in rebellion. It's living your life contrary to everything that God stands for. Repentance is not a condition of receiving eternal life. It is a condition of the relationship that man violates. Now, the whole human race is under the will of God. The whole human race is under the rule of God. The third pillar is repent, that is, change your behavior, change your life, if it is contrary to the declared rule of God. You need to repent. That is, you need to turn, turn away from your life that is contrary to God, ungodly. So you need to go from being ungodly to being godly because the gospel of God says God is going to come, and when he comes, he's coming in judgment. Therefore, if you believe the promise, time is fulfilled, kingdom of God has come near, then you will repent because your life is not, you are not ready to meet God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, get yourself ready to meet God. Believe the gospel, the gospel of God. You need to believe it. And if you believe it, you will repent. You will start living your life the way God tells you to live your life so that you will not be a victim of his wrath. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, it is important, it is imperative, it is absolutely critical that you believe that God is going to physically manifest on this earth in sovereign power, and the first display of his sovereign power will be judgment of the ungodly. Which, of course, is described in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46, in what we call the judgment related, of course, to the sheep and goats. You don't want to fall victim, friend. You got to get yourself ready. You got to make sure. Because here's the deal. It's going to be, most people think it's going to be a cakewalk for a believer. If you're a believer, then, hey, you, you fix, no problem. It's going to just be those goats. But that's phase one. There are two phases. Phase one is the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Phase two is the behemoth judgment of the righteous. And both of them will occur on this earth 
This, ladies and gentlemen, is why the gospel of God is so important and why we should be preaching it. We used to preach it, and then it became confused with the gospel of Christ. And so we, we took the gospel of God, and then we took the gospel of Christ, and we tried to combine them together like this picture. You see what, you see what that picture is? It is a square peg trying to be squeezed into a round hole. That's what that picture is. And when you try to take the gospel of God and make it equal to the gospel of Christ, you're taking a square peg trying to squeeze it into a round hole and it will not fit. Because the gospel of God is a call to obedience. The gospel of Christ is a call to faith. They're totally different. The consequence of the gospel of God is judgment. The consequence of the gospel of Christ is salvation. They're totally different. Therefore, you can't make one the other, and you can't make them equal, and you can't squeeze them into each other. They are two separate realities. One is a call to obedience, ladies and gentlemen. The other is a call to faith. This is more than critical. It is essential to your life that you understand this. When you confuse the two, what you get is Arminianism, the belief that you can lose your salvation or that you've got to work like a dog, that you've got to you've got a it's a it's a work salvation you go to church you do good things you be good you say your prayers you you confess they got all of these things and you're doing all these things so that you will be good enough to be saved you're trying to work your way into the favor of god you can't work your way in the favor of god you must believe the promise and the promise of the gospel of god is that if you repent you will, ladies and gentlemen, escape the judgment of God. Repent and believe the gospel. Just that simple. It is just that simple. Thanks to each of you for joining me in this study. Visit kingdomalive.us. That's www.kingdomalive.us for more information. Please tell a friend and join us next time. Until then, train to reign.